I want to thank you for joining us tonight for our uh, rapture session number one. And the context is particularly interesting. We've spent five sessions covering the seven churches in Revelation. And then Revelation chapter 4, so chapter 1, 2, and 3 deal specifically with the church. And then we open up chapter 4 with this statement from the Apostle John. It's Revelation 4 verse 1. And then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here. And I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and Carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Now, did you notice what follows the seven churches in Revelation? This is where we're going to start the rapture study. We have just spent the first three chapters dealing specifically with the church. John, write down this message to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Jesus delivers a message, transcribes the message specifically to, to the apostle John. And then as you open up verse 4, it says there's a door standing open and the same voice as before, which is who? Jesus says, come up here. Come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. After what? <clears throat> after this. Come up here. So John is moving from um, where he's at on the earth, receiving this revelation of the seven churches. And then suddenly, after the seven churches, come up here. His location's going to change. John is part of the church but his location is about to change. Come up here. I want to show you what must happen after this. After what? Here's the reason I bring this up as we start this session tonight. Is this a scene, a picture, a preview of the rapture of the church? You see, the church is mentioned again in Revelation until chapter 21. And in chapter 21, she's referred to as the bride of Christ. Isn't that interesting? She's the church. She's the church. She's the emphasis. She's the talk in the first three chapters. And then there's a uh, come up here moment. John's going to relocate from the earth and he's going to look into the heavenly scene. Come up here and I'll show you what must happen after this. Is the after this, after the time of the church, when we come up there? In Revelation 21, the church appears again, and this time she's called the bride of Christ. Is this the rapture of the church? Let me begin this session by doing something that I think is really important. A lot of people struggle with the idea that there is going to be a rapture at all. So I need to say something. Let me begin this first se session to the skeptics of the idea of the rapture itself. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in the rapture. Now, stay with me. I don't want you to run out on me before I have a chance to explain. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in a coming rapture of the church. Yes, you do. Maybe you just don't know it in the context I'm going to show it to you, but I want you to listen. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in the rapture of the church. So let's read it. The most prominent scripture about the rapture is found in Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. We call it Thessalonians 4.15. Here's what he says. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Now, is, is this Paul? No. Directly from the Lord. So obviously Jesus has told Paul specifically what's going to happen. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, this is alive people, okay? We who are still living when the Lord returns. What's, what's the scene? There's going to be people on the earth who are alive when Jesus returns. We who are still living when the, Lord's, when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. Now we've introduced another party. We who are still living, the Lord's coming, but what about the dead people, the buried people, the believers who, are, who have already died? 
We will not meet the Lord ahead of those who have died. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Who's coming and who's doing this? There's alive people on the earth, believers, and there's dead bodies of believers in the earth. And here comes Jesus. There's a loud shout. There's the voice of the archangel and there's a trumpet blast. And here comes Jesus. And he says, first, we give you this directly from the Lord. First, the Christians, that's the believers who have died. That's the bodies of the believers who are in the earth. The Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Number one, the Christians who have died, where are they? Well, let's just stay with the body right now. The bodies of believers who had died before this event, their bodies are scattered across the earth in graveyards or wherever. They're going to rise from their graves. And then, that's number one, and then here comes number two. Then together with them. So this is not a long time afterwards. No, with them. Together with them. We just don't go first. They go first. The dead bodies are going to rise. Then together with them, together with those dead body believers who are rising, we who are still alive and who remain on the earth during that time of Jesus' coming will be caught up. There's the word. There's the word rapture. You want to call it the caught up? Call it the caught up. Together with them, we who remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In the clouds, in the air, caught up. We're number two, though the graves are opening, number one. We who are still alive are number two. We're all going together at the same time into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're not meeting him in Jerusalem, not at this point. We're meeting him in the air, right? That's what it says. And look at what he says next. Then we will be with the Lord how long? Forever. So encourage each other with these words. Now here's the reason I begin with the skeptics. If you believe the Bible, you believe in a coming rapture. Where people will be caught up, snatched up into the clouds to meet the air. Right? Why? Because if you're a Christian, if you believe in the Bible, you believe that's really going to happen because you believe it to be the Word of God. The question for the skeptics tonight is this. It's not about the rapture. Your skepticism is not about the rapture or this caught up event. The question is whether or not people will be left behind. So don't confuse the issue about whether people are going to be left behind with the idea of a rapture. They are two separate points of view, and I'm going to address that. But here's the reason I bring this up. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in a rapture. Maybe you want to call it the caught up. Maybe you want to call it the snatched up. Call it what you want to, but it's coming. We will deal with that as we go through the sessions. What? Will there be people left behind after the caught up, after the snatching, after the rapture? So let's start with the first part. If we're going to start with this discussion, let's start with the first part. Do you believe in the imminent return of Christ? And I use the word specifically imminent, which means that it can happen at any moment, even during this session, it could happen. There is nothing that the Bible says has to happen first before Jesus can come and call his bride into the clouds. So what happens, what do you think happens when a person, a believer, takes on this view of the imminent return of Christ? What do you think would happen to a body of people, a group of people who lived in, in the reality of the worldview that Jesus is not only coming, his return is imminent. It's soon. I need to be prepared, ready, and waiting because it might be today. It might be today. Tomorrow I wake up and maybe it's today. Next day I wake up, maybe it's today. What would happen if that became the real life worldview? I want to propose something. I'm convinced that if and when that becomes who you are, you will purify your lives of sin, number one. If you thought 
there was a great possibility that you'll meet Jesus today. Confessing your sin and repenting of your sin would be a very natural thing to do. You, you, would, you would deal with that. Yeah, you would. And you know what the second thing? I'm convinced not only would you confess and repent of your personal sin so that you're ready and waiting for that imminent return, but you would go tell somebody that you would share the news about the soon return of Christ. A sense of urgency always comes to those who accept the reality of Jesus's soon return. We live differently when we conclude in our mind, our worldview is the soon return of Christ. It is an imminent event. We become prepared. We become ready urgent to purify our lives of sin, urgent to share the good news with others that won't be lost and won't be left behind. We won't be um, panicking at the idea. We'll live with an expectancy regarding the idea. So I'm going to use the phrase several times during this session, we'll be ready and waiting. We won't be caught off guard. Why? because of the imminent idea that it could happen at any moment. And I need to be prepared for it happening at any moment. Now, I'm convinced that the church, since the time of Christ, had this worldview. That they lived ready, and they lived waiting. So let's go to 1 John chapter 3. And I want to show you why I believe that the church is always lived ready and waiting the imminent return of Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See how very much our Father loves us? For He calls us His children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world, they're not going to look at the world the way we do. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know Him. Dear friends, we're already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we will be like. Here it comes. We're already God's children, but even though I'm God's child and you're God's child and we have the Holy Spirit, He has not yet fully revealed what we'll, we will be like when Christ appears. He has not yet shown us because we're still in the flesh, what we will be like when, when something big happens that will then finally show us what we'll be like. What is that event? When Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him. For we will see Him as He really is. Now, here's the reason I'm giving you this scripture. Verse 3. And all who have this eager expectation... You see who these people are? I, I, don't, I don't know. I know I'm one of God's children. I don't belong to the world. I belong to God. Um, I don't know what everything's going to be like when Christ appears. I don't know what my body will fully be like or what my life will be fully like when Christ appears. But I do know that I will be like him and I will see him as he really is. And then he says this. This puts it all together. And all of us who live with this eager expectation... You see this ready and waiting? It's here. All who live with this eager expectation will do something. They will keep themselves pure, just as He is pure. They will be ready, and they will be waiting. I'm convinced that the true church has always lived with a sense of eager expectation regarding the return of Christ. If you read the writings of the apostles um, in the New Testament, they lived ready and waiting. They were anxiously expecting that even in their lifetime in the first century church, they were ready and they were waiting. Jesus' return has been the ultimate goal of every generation since the time of Christ. What is the ultimate goal? Jesus' return. I went to a church leadership uh, conference just a few months ago, and it was great, and our staff enjoyed it, but there was something I left there. With something, there was one thing missing. Of all the sessions that the speaker spoke, and it was really good, so I'm not making light of it, but there was something missing. In every session, of all the sessions of that week, I never one time heard a minister or one of the speakers talk about the imminent soon return of Christ. 
You see, I'm convinced that all of creation is groaning this single event. It is bigger than any plan we might have individually or as the body of Christ is the coming of Christ. So let's begin this first rapture session by using our imaginations. What do you think the world will be like if every Christian is suddenly taken away from the earth? What do you think would happen on planet earth if in a single moment, every believer, every Christian, those buried their bodies and those alive who are currently having the light of Christ shine into the dark world, if suddenly in a moment, in a flash, in a twinkling of eye, they're all gone, what would happen? How will people explain the sudden disappearances? Will everyone suddenly... So here's the reason I asked the question. Do you think in that moment everyone will suddenly, because they see uh, the preacher, that preacher guy that I heard on TV, he's gone. Uh, that neighbor down the road who always talked about Jesus, he's gone. She's gone. They're gone. Does that mean suddenly the whole world who, who, who thought it was not real, suddenly they're all going to turn to Christ? Well, let me give you another option. Or will everyone just turn deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness? Which one do you think? Will the people who are left behind be able to think clearly in the moment of the absence of the church? Do you think rational thinking will be paramount during the time in which suddenly the light of the world, the salt of the earth, has just vanished? Do you think clear thinking will lead people to Christ, or do you think there will be panic? So let's answer the question um, with the Scripture. Paul writes two letters to the Thessalonian church. I read to you earlier the first letter where he announced the, announces the rapture. <clears throat> What's going to happen to Christians who are, have died? Where are they? What's going to happen to them when Jesus comes? But he writes a second letter. So let's go to the second Thessalonians chapter two, verse five, his second letter. And he refers to the first time he was there. Here we go. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? So he's talking about earlier conversations in this second letter. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what's holding him back. Now, now who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus is coming and because Jesus is coming, the enemy in some form is also coming. And in this case, he's going to be re referencing the Antichrist. And what's going to hold back the Antichrist? We believe in the imminent return of Jesus, but there are some things connected with his coming. So here we go. And you know what's holding him back for he can only, he can be revealed only when his time comes. Now, we're not talking about Jesus is coming, not, not now. We're talking about the coming of the man of lawlessness. How do I know that? The Antichrist. Verse 7. Let me, let me read 6 and 7 together. And you know what's holding him back, and I'll insert the word the Antichrist. For he can be revealed only when his time comes, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Now, there's a lawlessness, a secret power of lawlessness. The Apostle John says it's been operating parallel to the cross. Of, since the time of Christ, when the gospel has been operating in truth, the secret power of the Antichrist the spirit of Antichrist has been working alongside the power of Christ. The Antichrist is also here. The secret power of lawlessness, it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Now, I'm going to tell you in advance, I believe the one that is holding back the secret power of lawlessness is the church, which is the body of Christ, which is the light of the world, the Holy Spirit on the earth in the church age. The restrainer of evil, the restrainer of darkness is the light itself. Holding back the spirit of Antichrist, holding back this man of lawlessness. Verse 8, then, then what? What's then? After the one who is holding it back is taken out of the way. I believe that's when the church is raptured. 
Then, after the church is raptured, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. He, this man, by the way, it's not just a spirit of Antichrist that's been here since the time of Christ. Now, the spirit of Antichrist has manifested itself inside a single human being. He, now he's one. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Now, here's the reason I'm reading this to you. I asked you a question a few minutes ago. What do you think will happen if every Christian on the earth suddenly disappears? Will everybody suddenly run and come to Christ and confess Christ? Look at all the, go to YouTube, look up all the old sermons, go to the old church websites and listen to the sermons, get out the Bibles, read the Bibles, and suddenly everybody will turn to Christ. There's a problem with that idea. When the one who is holding back the darkness steps out of the way, the Antichrist himself will come. Let me read verse 10. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. These are the people left behind. He will use, and he has power, every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would or could save them. Now, here it comes. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies, these lies of the Antichrist in the days that follow the rapture of the church. God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they'll believe these lies and they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth Paul tells us that a powerful spirit of deception will come upon the earth after the rapture of the church. Are you hearing me? Paul has clearly said, this is this, he's writing a second letter to the church at Thessalonica. In the first letter, he talks about the rapture. In the second letter, he talks about what's holding back the Antichrist and what will happen <clears throat> to the world when the Antichrist comes. A powerful spirit of deception will come. The arrival of the Antichrist will bring a new spirit of deception to those who remain on the earth. If you are currently, if you are currently have a wait and see attitude about the rapture, you are truly foolish. And let me describe what I mean by that. If you're thinking you can ride the fence and you, you like to have one foot in the faith and one foot in the world, and you'll see if one day all those believers that you know are actually gone and it really happened just like that preacher talked about, and suddenly if I see that, I'm in. That is the most foolish concept I have ever imagined. Because he says that God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe lies and there will be a liar who will appear when the one who is holding him back steps out of the way, is taken out of the way, I believe that is the rapture of the church. You see, when people are faced with chaos... When people are faced with chaos, and I believe that chaos will be the natural byproduct of the taking away of the church. If the church is indeed the restrainer of evil, the one holding back the darkness, and the church leaves, then here comes the evil, and here comes the darkness, and here comes the chaos. And when people are faced with chaos, they will always choose tyranny over freedom. Setting the stage for the coming Antichrist, one world government where he will rule in power and absolute authority. The current coronavirus is a great example of this right now. When people are faced with chaos and uncertainty, people will give up their freedoms and they will turn over their freedoms. Things we would agree to now that we would have never agreed to when everything was peaceful. We will give up those freedoms while asking that the government or some power will give us order, will give us some peace and security. The same will happen in the absence of the church. But in that case, they'll be turning over the world's reins and authority and power to the man of lawlessness. 
the one who will be empowered specifically by Satan himself. The chaos and lawlessness will create a political vacuum that will be filled by one man, the Antichrist. Let's talk about that. In Revelation 13, verse 2, the beast, and I want to tell you clearly, the beast in Revelation is the Antichrist. He is the, Paul describes him as the man of lawlessness, the one that, that is being held back right now by the church. The beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And here's where it gets interesting. Now we got the beast. He's the Antichrist. He's a man. And now there's a dragon. And the dragon gave the beast his own power. And the dragon gave the beast his throne. And the dragon gave the beast his great authority. So here you have Satan, referred to as the dragon, giving a man, a man, power, authority, and a throne. Jesus himself declares that Satan currently, listen, Satan currently has worldwide authority. And the revelation reveals that Satan will give that power, that authority, and that throne to the beast, to a man. So let me show you what Jesus says about the current authority of the dragon or Satan. So in John 12, verse 30, before the cross, before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus told them, the voice that they heard from heaven was for your benefit, not mine. For the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Now, here's what I want you to focus on. Jesus has just announced that Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, that's before the cross. He makes that statement. So let's go to John 14, 29. Jesus says, I told you these things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you. Now, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father after the resurrection. I don't have much more time to talk to you because something the ruler of this world approaches. He's again, Jesus again is referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. And then he says, Jesus, he has no power over me. But I will do what the Father requires of me, and that's the cross, so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. Revelation 13, verse 7 and 8. And the beast, here he is, okay, he's the Antichrist. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people. Now, here's a man, we're in the Revelation, and here's a man who now has this great authority and power from the dragon. This world power that Jesus talks about has been given from the dragon, from Satan to a man, the beast. In the absence of the church that restrains darkness and evil, this is a powerful force. Listen to what he says. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. Now, I'm going to give you a hint. I believe that's the, the Jewish people that will be on the earth during the tribulation. The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people, and he's going to conquer them to some degree. And he was given authority. Who's he? He's the beast. He was given authority to rule over every tribe and every people and every language and every nation. Where does he get this authority? Satan has current worldwide authority until the final return of Christ. And he's given it to the beast in verse 8. And all the people who belong to this world, they worship the beast. They are the ones whose names are not, notice the word not written in the book of life before the world was made, the book that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered. Notice this beastly authority is worldwide. 
We're not talking about a localized government or a localized power or a localized event. We're talking about worldwide. Every tribe, every people, every language, every nation has fallen under the authority of the beast and what unleashed the beast. What unleashed him? When the one who is holding him back steps out of the way. When God removes the church, the restrainer of evil, the Holy Spirit, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, when he takes it away. His focus, the beast. Listen, this is, this is important. His focus won't be the church. When he comes, his focus won't be the church. Did you notice? He's making war against God's holy people to conquer them. I'm convinced that he's not making war on the church. Why? The church is gone. So he goes after the unbelieving Jews. Number one, and anyone who might come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, they become his target. And yes, I'll get into this more detail in the other sessions. Yes, I believe that people will come to Christ. Some will come to Christ during the tribulation. In fact, I'm convinced that's the purpose of the tribulation is that a remnant will still survive. A remnant will come to Christ during the seven years. So let's do something. Let's back up 500 years before the time of Jesus, before the time of Christ. And the prophet's name is Daniel. And Daniel is given great insight into these end times. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, here's how he begins. At the end of their rule. Now, who's, who's their rule? Now, if you read all of Daniel, it'll become clear that he's talking about the Gentile kingdoms of men. Because Daniel's the one that re revealed that, that when all of the Gentile kingdoms of men are completed, that God has ordained in advance, there's a rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. It's going to come and crush the feet of iron and clay. And all the Gentile kingdoms of men are going to fall and turn to dust and blow away into history. And when he's writing this, at the end of their rule, these Gentile kingdoms of men, when their sin is at its height, he's prophesying end time events. A fierce king. Here he comes. The Antichrist. Here he comes. At the end of the rule of the Gentile kingdoms of men, when sin is at its height, the tribulation is beginning, a fierce king, a master of intrigue will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. How's the beast going to get power? Satan, the dragon, will give him the power and the throne and the authority. He will be very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He's like unstoppable. He will destroy powerful leaders and he'll devastate the holy people. By the way, I believe that's a specific reference to the Jewish people during the tribulation. He will be a master of deception and he will become arrogant and he will destroy many without warning, and he will even, here we go, the grand finale, he will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. You know what it means? No human authority will stop him because he operates from Satan's authority, and no one could stop Satan except one, and he will be the one who will destroy him. The prince of princes. So, all of that to ask this question, how should the church in waiting look at this session so far? We have studied specifically for five sessions the seven churches of Revelation, and here comes, here comes the rapture. What will happen after this? Come up here, and I'll show you what will happen after this. Now, I read that. They come up here, John. You're going to relocate from the earth. You're going to move up into heaven, because I'm going to show you what future time. After the church, somebody's going to come up here. And I'll show you after this that the church will be taken from here to there and then unlocking the tribulation, which is unleashing the Antichrist. 
So back to the question, how should the current church in waiting look at the session so far? We should be ready and waiting. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise. Some people count as some people think. He's not slow. In fact, let me just stop and say this. that Just because we say 2,000 years ago Jesus came, it makes it seem like such a distant thing. But if you look at that across a lifespan of 70 years, that a generation is 70 years. You know how many generations it's been? It's been 30 Roughly 30 generations of families have gone, come and gone since the time of Christ. 30, it's not such a big number. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, what? To come and to take His church, to resurrect His bride. He isn't slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. Why is He patient? Because He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but He wants everyone to what? He wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come, as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, and here comes the question. And since you and I have advance notice about everything that's going to happen, you and I have advance warning about everything that's coming. There is going to be a day in which he's going to take the church away. And when he does, the Antichrist will be revealed and the tribulation will begin in which horrible, horrible events will take place. And he says this, and then the heavens, at the end of that, the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in the fire. And the earth and everything on it is going to be found to deserve judgment. And since everything is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should be living. Here comes the big part. What holy and godly lives we should be living while we're looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. I like the idea that the more I look forward to it, the faster it's coming. On that day, He, Jesus, will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. And we are looking forward. Is this you? Because twice in this text, He says, what holy people we ought to be. We ought to be looking forward. Is it you? Are you ready? Are you waiting? We're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. He promised a world filled with God's righteousness. Is this you? Are you ready? Are you waiting? Because Jesus warns us about something. He warns us about the sin of apathy and the apostasy that's going to be alive and well when he comes for his bride. In Matthew 24, 11, he says, and many false prophets will appear. They're here. And they will deceive many people. What's number one? Jesus says there's going to be false teachers and they're going to be good at false teaching. And they're going to lead a lot of people astray. They're going to fall away from the truth of God's word. And number two, sin will become rampant. When you remove the Holy Scriptures because of false teachers, sin will come and it will grow and grow and grow. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And number three, false teachers have brought more sin and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news, the gospel will be preached. The good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it and then something will happen. And then the end will come. Jesus describes the apostasy, the false prophets. Sin will be everywhere. And you know what the key word will be? It was in when we studied the seven churches of Revelation. The key word is tolerance, 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 tolerance. Tolerance 
has become the apostasy, the abandonment of the word. And then he says something that kind of trips up maybe some people. He says, the gospel will be preached worldwide. So many people have taken that to believe that until everybody in the world knows the gospel, Jesus, the rapture of the church will never take place. Let me suggest that the gospel will be preached in fulfillment of Jesus's announcement, but not necessarily before the rapture. Now I'll get into that more in the future sessions when angels and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are be supernaturally called of God. There will be a series of events that I believe will fulfill this text and the gospel will be preached to every nation on earth and then the end will come. But that does not necessarily mean before the rapture. The word tonight is rapture. Let's focus on the word itself. It could be translated the rapture, caught up, taken out, snatched away. The word is specifically found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Let's get into the word. In verse 17, it says, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. The English phrase comes from the Greek word, Harpazo, harpazo. It is used in other New Testament applications. Now, I think this will help a lot of people. This is not the only place you're going to find this Greek to English translation, harpazo to rapture. So let's look at some of the other applications of that same Greek word. Let's go to John 10, verse 27. Jesus is speaking in this text, and he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. You know what the Greek word in there? It's the same word that's used to translate rapture. No one can snatch them. So maybe you don't believe in the rapture, but maybe you can say you believe in the snatching. Maybe you don't believe in the rapture, but you can say you believed in the caught up. It's okay. It's the same thing. Let's go to Acts 8.38. He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water. This is Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord harpazoed snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, I'm going to tell you, that has a very clear application to what we would refer to as the rapture. Rapture. The Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and you couldn't see him. The eunuch stood there and thought, what happened to him? He's gone. Let's go keep going. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. The Apostle Paul is referring to his encounter with God where he was taken from the earth. Whether he was in the flesh or in the spirit, he says, I don't know. I can't tell. But he says this, verse 2, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. You know what that word caught up? It's all the same word. Rapture, caught up, snatched. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. But I know I'm gone. I'm not here anymore. I left here. Now, let's see who's getting caught up and who's getting raptured and who's getting snatched by Jesus into the clouds. Because ultimately, that's what we're here for. Who are these people in 1 Thessalonians who are getting caught up, snatched, taken away? Who are they? Let's go to verse 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. This entire session begins with Paul saying... To a church, I want you to know what happens, what's going to happen, what has happened to your grandparents who you buried before, and they were believers. Okay, let's just make it where we can understand it. Believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope because they're grieving that they buried their grandparents and they were believers. And let's just say that their grandparents were waiting on the return of Christ and he didn't come and they died and we buried them. What about them, Paul? The New Living Translation says believers who have died. The New American Standard Bible and the NIV refer to them as sleeping. 
Either way, it's clear what we're talking about. These people have died. Physically, they've died. And they've buried these people. What about them? Same in the next verse. Who's Paul, who's Paul talking about in this next verse? Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, right? That's the foundation of our faith, that Jesus is bodily resurrection. We also believe that when Jesus returns, okay, what do we believe? Jesus died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. But we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him. Everybody listen. When Jesus returns, God's going to bring back with Jesus the believers who have died already. So let's read that same verse in the New American Standard. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So I want you to picture the Apostle Paul looking at these people who are grieving the death of their grandparents who were waiting on the coming of the Lord, but he didn't come. So they died. They put him in the grave. And he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to those people in the grave. Now we're referring to believers, right? Here comes a big point, big point. All of the sleeping people or the dead people, they are all believers. If they're not a believer, this does not apply. If you're not a Christian, this does not apply. The not in Christ, those who are not in Christ, the unbelievers, they're going to stay asleep until later. And they're going to miss, listen, they're going to miss this graveyard rapture event. Is everybody listening? You got two groups. There's only going to be two groups, at least right now in this conversation, two groups. The believers who have died and the unbelievers who have died. The believers who have died, they're going to get this rapture event that Paul's talking about. The unbelievers, they're going to miss it. Their bodies are going to stay in the ground for a while longer. Okay? You need to understand that. Sleeping believers' bodies, sleeping believers... And I'm not talking about their souls. I'm talking about their bodies. They are buried in the ground, but their souls have gone to be with the Lord. That's how verse 14 makes sense. The souls of believers who have previously died before the rapture are where? They've gone to be with the Lord. But now they are coming back with Jesus God will send the souls of the believers who have died with Jesus back when he calls the people out of the grave. The decayed and buried bodies of believers will rise to meet the Lord in the air and Jesus will put the soul that's coming back with him into a recreated, resurrected, eternal body. And it will happen, listen, in the blink of an eye, in an instant, in a flash. Some will ask, and I've had a lot of people ask this question over the years, what kind of body? Okay, okay, preacher, you got my attention. The body's in the ground. These are believers. The body's in the ground. The soul is gone to be with the Lord. And now here comes the Lord back for the rapture of the church, and he brings the souls of my dead grandmother, my dead grandfather. He's bringing their souls back. He raises the body up. Then what kind of a body do they have right now in heaven? While they await the resurrection of the last day, are they just a spirit? Do they have a body? I can tell you it looks like that there is an intermediate body, a temporary body given to their souls while they await the resurrection or the rapture to take place at Jesus' return. There's an interesting point here. It looks like the rapture event to meet Jesus in the air is for the church age saints only. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It looks like, there's almost no other way to come to this conclusion. It looks like what we're describing here in 1 Thessalonians is a church age, the dead in Christ, which would be from the cross of Christ forward. It looks like we're only talking about them, which means we're excluding. It looks like, to me, it looks like he's excluding the Old Testament saints. What about King David? 
What about the prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and Elisha? It looks like the Old Testament saints will experience their resurrected body. And I'm going to show you where I get this. It looks like the Old Testament saints are going to get their resurrected bodies at the end of the seven-year tribulation, seven years later. I'm going to show you. When Jesus then doesn't come in the clouds, seven years later, Jesus is going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going to come in and take a seat on David's throne. He's going to begin a thousand year reign on the earth. And at that point, the Old Testament saints are going to come and get resurrected bodies. Here it comes. We're going back to Daniel, 500 years before Christ. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation. By the way, Michael stands guard over the nation of Israel. At that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation, will arise. And then there will be a time of anguish. Now, I'm going to tell you before I read it, I believe this is a direct reference to the seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture of the church. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. That's how Jesus describes the tribulation too. But at that time, but at, but at that time, every one of your people, he's talking about the Jewish people. Every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Many of those whose bodies, now here's where I get the resurrection after the tribulation. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who led many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book until the time, how long does he got to keep it sealed up? Until the time of the end. You know, that's 2,500 years ago when Daniel wrote this. Seal up this prophecy until the time of the end when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. This would be a good time to put together that entire First Thessalonians section. And I want to do something and then we'll turn a corner and wrap this up. I need to connect some dots for tonight. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. That's what this entire discussion began with. What's going to happen to the believers who are dead, who are buried? So that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, since I believe that, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord, so don't get mad at Paul. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living, and by the way, as of this moment, that's us. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. They get to go first. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And first, notice the order, first the Christians who have died are going to rise from their graves. Then together with them, that means that we're not talking about a large gap of time, they just get to go first. And then together with them, which means it's the same event, we who are still alive and remain on the earth, here comes the word, harpazo, snatched, raptured, then we who are still alive are going to be caught up in the clouds, meet the Lord in the air. And there we will be with the Lord forever, so encourage each other with these words. Now, if that scripture terrifies you, you are not ready and you are not waiting. If the idea that that's going to happen in one hour from now, you and, and you're terrified at that idea, you've got time to respond. Because did you notice that last sentence, verse 18? So encourage each other with these words. That's supposed to encourage you. That's supposed to get you fired up, keep you in the race, keep you focused, right? Ready and waiting, ready and waiting. Now here comes... One last scene. What is the shout? 
When he comes, there's going to be a shout, the voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God, a loud shout. What is the shout? Now, nobody can say for sure. Can we know what the Lord says to the church? What he shouts to the church? Does he say, wake up, you who are in the graves? Wake up. Now, I'm going to tell you just an opinion right now. I believe the shout is revealed in Jesus' word in Matthew 25. And I believe this same Matthew 25 text answers the question. I believe two things are answered in Matthew 25. Number one, what is the shout? And number two, will there be people left behind? And I'm going to read it to you. And the whole story from Jesus is about those who are ready and waiting. And no, you will not fake him out. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, I want you to notice something. When the bridegroom was delayed, which tells me it's a long time. 2,000 years for us is a long time. And when the bridegroom was delayed, they all, the foolish ones and the wise ones, they all became drowsy and they all fell asleep. But something happened at midnight. Maybe that's something that happened at midnight was God's mercy to wake people up, to call them to account, to prepare yourself, get ready. Because at midnight, they were roused by the shout. And what's the shout? Look, the bridegroom's coming. Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps, all, 10 of them. And then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough oil for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil. See, there's a little bit of a gap in time. Do you see it? Between the shout and the door closing and opening. So while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. And then those who were ready... Those who were ready, those who were ready, did I mention ready and waiting? Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the doors closed. Later, the other five bridesmaids returned. They stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch. What's Jesus' message? You must keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. You must ask this question every time you read one of Jesus' parables. Why did he tell that story? You must keep watch. Can you see all the dots connected with this wonderful and horrible story? Ready and waiting. Some will be ready and some will not. I'm talking about the rapture. Some will be ready and some will not. Some will be taken. Some will be raptured. Some are going to be snatched. Some are going to be caught up. And some will be left behind to face an unparalleled time of trouble and chaos on the earth. The apostle Peter and Jesus himself tell us that this oil in your lamp's readiness will be hard. It will be filled with opposition and it will never come natural. Peter also reveals that God's judgment will begin with the church. Can you see it in the ten bridesmaids? They all had some oil. Do you see? Judgment began with God's household. Judgment began. They all had oil. Oil is the source of the light. They all had this oil in their lamps. And yet some of them didn't have enough to stay the distance. They didn't finish with oil. They had oil, but it didn't last. Can anybody see that judgment begins with the church? What do you think judgment will begin with at the rapture? If some who claim to be in Christ go and others don't go. This is what Peter says. 
First Peter 4.16. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment. And it must begin in God's household. In the parable of the ten virgins, ten bridesmaids, judgment began in God's household. All ten of them. Some weren't ready and they weren't waiting. For the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, God's household, what terrible fate awaits those who never obey God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinner? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Can you see it? Judgment will begin in God's household, the family of God, the church. I'm convinced the rapture of the church will be God's judgment beginning with us. Some will be ready and some will not. You must be ready. That's the message tonight. One last scripture from Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus says, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the meal and one will be taken and the other left. So you too must keep watch. For you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would watch, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. All the time. For the Son of Man will come when you least expect we are right now living in an unparalleled time. In my life, I've never seen anything like this right now. I know there's been other terrible times on the earth, and I don't want to make more or less out of this than it is. But there is worldwide disease going around the world right now, and there's an international monetary crisis where economic collapse is looming. And how you respond to this determines who you are. Because there was a loud shout giving the bridegroom is coming tonight. I say the bridegroom is coming. It is imminent. I don't know the day. I don't know the hour. But I know the word imminent means any time. And we must keep watch. For we don't know the day and the hour. But we must be ready. And we must be waiting. In Jesus name. And amen.